This is the Diet of Brussels. Ah, uh, where are we with all this? It's the weekend of uh, the 3rd and 4th of October, which means we've now finished all of the original planned rounds for the negotiation of the future relationship between the UK and the EU. We've had a video teleconference between Ursula von der Leyen, President of the Commission, and Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, yesterday, which resulted in one of the blander statements of uh, political life, which basically said we will organise some further rounds and we will try harder and we'll see if we can find an agreement and use the words, if at all possible, which suggests that uh, a degree of uncertainty hangs over the whole process which, for those of you who've been paying any attention whatsoever over the past six months, uh, will come as absolutely no surprise to you whatsoever. A lot of what we've seen in this past week is really just the, the whole future relationship dynamic in microcosm. Uh, the problems are the same that they were back in uh, March, uh, at the start of the negotiations. The uh, solutions basically remain the same and the chances of a deal remain, well, actually worse than they were at the beginning for the reason that uh, there is now much less time. If we want a, a diagnosis of the problem, then I think it still remains in that core uh, issue that I've identified over numerous episodes over several years, which is that the UK still doesn't really know what the point of Brexit is. How does it fit into a plan of what British society should be like, what its role in the world uh, might uh, consist of? And absent that vision, absent that idea of what's what, then it becomes very hard to pursue a constructive agenda. It becomes very simple to pursue a destructive agenda or an avoidant agenda of these are the things we don't want, but much harder to then say, well, actually what we do want is this. It's probably been most uh, evident uh, in recent weeks on the issue of state aid, where the UK doesn't want to sign up to the EU's rules, understandable, uh, but doesn't want to sign up to anything uh, and really would like to just say, well, trust us at the point that we develop a state aid policy, uh, we'll play fair and everything will be all right. And, you know, if you look at our track record, we've been much less uh, interventionist than some countries have been uh, in uh, the EU. Now, that might all well be true, but for an EU that is increasingly distrustful of the UK, uh, an EU that hears uh, members of the British government and senior advisors talking about pumping huge amounts of uh, public funding into supporting new technologies uh, to make the UK a, a world leader in this uh, field, uh, that raises alarm bells. And the inability uh, of the UK, and it is an inability rather than an unwillingness, to produce what its future state aid policy might look like is really, I think, indicative of the way that uh, this particular government under Boris Johnson, but also generally the UK as a whole, has gone in that period since 2016. 
the upshot then is that the uh, anxieties on the European sides about level playing field, about uh, governance, about fisheries have not gone away and if anything have deepened even as you had very warm uh, efforts uh, on the part of Michel Barnier on Friday to talk up all the progress that's been made across the board, all the different other areas about trading goods, trading services, uh, participation in EU programs, energy, transport, all of those things have gone pretty well, to be honest. Uh, the issue has been the issues that were there at the beginning. And the solution remains some kind of significant political moment. And as anyone who has been on a Zoom call in the last six months can tell you, a Zoom call is not a significant political moment. We've had much talk uh, of late about a, a Taoiseach moment, uh, particularly from Irish commentators, uh, reminiscent of uh, the moment last autumn when Boris Johnson met uh, surprising, in a surprise move with uh, Leo Varadkar, then Taoiseach of Ireland, to unblock the process and move things on. Now, we can question the symbolic nature of this as opposed to the substantive one since the substance was basically the UK conceding uh, to a position that was closer to the UK EU's original ask but certainly symbolically uh, it mattered in terms of portraying uh, the Prime Minister as a leader who was ready to make the tough calls ready to sort Brexit out get Brexit done uh, do the thing that nobody else could do, show that he was no Theresa May. And really, I think, absent a similar kind of moment, which will need to be in person, which will need to be with somebody who looks like a, a equivalent counterpart to the Taoiseach, because I don't think the Taoiseach is really going to be the right person for doing it this time, it's really hard to see how we get past any of this. And even with the uh, unofficial pushing back of deadlines back into November for this process now, uh, I think we can see that there are going to be lots of bumps in the road uh, before we get to anything that's even vaguely like uh, a deal. So what does that tell us about the chances of this actually happening? Well, uh, I think I have... Uh, a strong awareness that I have one of the crappier records on predictions in Brexit. Uh, and so I put that front and centre of my comments. However, I will note three things that I think are, look relatively unchanging and look relatively problematic for uh, the chances of a deal. Uh, the first one is simply the question of trust. Um, Trust is worse now between the two sides than it was back uh, this time last year. The reasons for this decline of trust are not hard to find uh, on both sides. For the EU, uh, they've had the delay in notification uh, of Article 50, uh, immediately followed by calling of a general election that sucked uh, a month and a half out of an already tight schedule. They've had the breaking of uh, Theresa May's 
political credibility with uh, the results of that general election and then also all the problems she had with the Chequers plan, the uh, revolt from the DUP about the joint text. Then we've had all of the uh, to and fro about meaningful votes and the ratification and the extensions and uh, everything else. And then we've had Boris Johnson who puts through a deal uh, and then almost immediately starts talking about uh, not honouring the terms of that deal, uh, even as the rhetoric continues to uh, flow. Uh, and, you know, we have uh, Dominic Raab today at the Tory party conference talking about uh, no longer being over a barrel with the EU, which hardly sounds like the language of a government that is concerned to make a particularly good impression, let alone act out that. And for the UK, the suspicions about the motives of the commission of member state governments uh, really has poisoned things from the beginning that levels of trust on Tory backbenchers in the EU really were very low, that this is all a plot, uh, that this is all an attempt to try and either keep the UK in the EU or very close or subjugated, uh, I think is a, a not uncommon attitude. Uh, you know, an occasional blips like uh, the Spanish government popping up, uh, you'll remember back in 2018 to mention Gibraltar and its status, uh, hardly contribute towards the positive atmospherics. So all of this really leaves us with low trust, uh, which again is not the most shockingly uh, original of uh, contributions, uh, but is important because one of the things we know about trust is that it is much harder to build trust than it is to destroy trust. And so the chances of uh, improving trust, which in turn allows for more flexibility, more accommodation, more understanding, more acceptance of the other side's uh, actions uh, and intentions uh, is really uh, not going to happen between now and, well, the foreseeable future. So trust is uh, the first key issue. The second key issue is simply time, uh, you know, the risk of sounding like a uh, stuck clock, if we're going to use that apt metaphor. Time is short. Time is super short. Uh, take your pick. You know, we can talk about COVID. We can talk about not using the extension mechanism. We can talk about uh, the whole process. The whole thing has been done, I know it feels like forever, but in very short order for something that is a really significant change in the arrangements of both parties in their relationships with each other. So at best, what we're talking about here is uh, a deal that uh, puts in place a framework which will allow for many, many more years of negotiations. Now, that's great for me as a professor of negotiations and of European politics and UK-EU relations. Uh, you might feel differently about that, but it's basically going to be uh, the way that this will work. The UK and the EU will still be there uh, if there's not a deal or if there is a deal. They still will have things that they need to talk about and that will be done in the form of negotiations because the UK won't be in this institutionalised uh, space where it's not really about... Uh, negotiating things in that way, but it's about a permanent relationship. Uh, if you want to look at an example, well, pick any uh, institutionalised relationship that the EU has with its close neighbours. Switzerland, for example, uh, the EEA, 
the European neighbourhood. All of these places are characterised by standing negotiations. We just keep on talking, keep on addressing problems as they come up, and we can keep on trying to work things out. It never really comes to an end. So time matters. Um, it matters because if you want to get through this hurdle to get to the next uh, long, long stretch of hurdles, uh, you will have to move very quickly. Remember that a deal is not just about Boris Johnson going for a walk in the park with uh, Emmanuel Macron or Angela Merkel. It is also about producing a legal text, of which there is not a single legal text at the moment. There are uh, drafts on each side, but they have not been brought together in any way. Uh, you then have to uh, check all of that, sign it off. Uh, it has to be then ratified. You need at least a partial ratification to go on uh, and be completed by the time that uh, the deadline of the 31st of December comes through. And they're probably going to have a whole bunch of implementation that comes in after which, afterwards, which will take a long time too. So time is not on anybody's side. And unlike Article 50, there is no extension. Uh, I've yet to meet a EU lawyer who thinks that there really is an acceptable way to put more time into this process. Um, yes, under international law, if both sides agree, they could change the terms of the withdrawal agreement. But uh, I think that that's not politically viable and will come with other legal issues as well. So we've got the time that we've got. And at the moment, well, uh, we can't be too confident. And the third issue that I think really matters uh, and works against a deal is the issue of differentiation. Part of the UK strategy uh, in all of this has been to uh, pair back the package, uh, trim it down to the bare bones, uh, partly uh, because there's this kind of disposition to we don't want to do any more than we have to with the EU, um, but also um, because the more stuff that there is on the agenda, the more points of uh, disagreement might arise and the more points of leverage that the other side might have. So let's talk about fish. The UK would be perfectly happy not to have a fishing agreement with the EU uh, because it thinks that its uh, other international obligations would be perfectly sufficient for what it wants, but the EU insisted. So now fish is a problem. Uh, it doesn't matter if we've got a deal on tariffs and trade uh, and uh, goods and services and all the rest, because if we don't have a fishing deal, the EU is not going to sign off on the package. But the narrowness of that deal, the lack of depth to that deal, uh, and yes, I know that there are some elements that are pretty significant, like zero tariffs, zero, uh, and the level playing field elements of it are quite significant, very significant in some cases. This is still a pretty thin deal. And one of the things that tells us is that even if we get that deal, even if we get it pretty much on UK terms, that when we get to the 1st of January next year, there will be impacts, disruption, delays, paperwork, confusion, unhappiness. But in a deal context, the UK owns that problem. It's their fault. They signed up to this. People will say, well, you know, you said that this would be fine. You've told us that this was the best deal in history, as undoubtedly number 10 will say. And yet now we find out that this best deal in history involves us having to fill out a load of paperwork and wait for hours. And where's my fresh fruit and veg and medicines and all the rest?
That disruption certainly is there also if there isn't a deal, and much more uh, so. But the difference between really bad and bad, uh, whilst it, that makes sense in negotiating terms, that even if a deal is still not great for the UK, as long as it's better than a no deal, it should go for it. That doesn't work in politics uh, because uh, you've got to uh, take some responsibility at some point. You've got to be able to sell the package. So the lack of difference, relative lack of difference between a deal and a no deal outcome is relatively small from the UK side. And also importantly, if there is a no deal, then there comes the enticing prospect that perhaps you can blame somebody else for the problems. We tried really hard, but those nasty Europeans stopped us. They insisted on this and that, and we've tried everything. And that's why we've seen lots of warm words this week, and we will see lots of warm words in the weeks to come, because neither side wants to be the person whose fault it was that this didn't happen. And they will try everything to try and present themselves as the people who tried everything to reach out, to find a deal, to make it work. Now, uh, if that sounds too cynical, uh, I think also that genuinely they both do want to have a deal. They do want to make things work. Uh, again, for the reason that uh, even if they can't make it work this time, they're still going to be facing each other over a table in six months' time uh, trying to make it work again with the same issues and with even less trust in the room. But in terms of the dynamics, the incentive structure, I think we've got some real issues here around securing a deal that will not get any easier and if anything will get much harder as time drips away. Now with that in mind uh, I could say it won't be a deal, uh, it's not going to work. Um, but uh, because I'm actually essentially an optimist uh, and also I like to think the best of people uh, I'm not going to say that because I still do hope that there would be a deal. But it's at that level of hope rather than of uh, anticipation at this point. I think we're kind of shading towards uh, a no deal being more likely than a, a deal. And uh, if that's the outcome, I will be resolutely unsurprised. Uh, of course, as we know, uh, these things tend to be backloaded. It may be that there is a breakthrough in the next month that allows everybody to save enough face uh, to make a package that works and for everything to uh, roll on to uh, another very low-key signing ceremony. But for now, as we sit here in the rain, one of the wetter weekends of 2020, we have to suggest that this doesn't look like a happy place for either side. And I think here we might think about uh, a bigger lesson in all of this, which is about what goes around comes around. Um, this situation was entirely avoidable uh, on both sides. Um, it gives me no satisfaction to see uh, this process fail. Uh, it also would give me no satisfaction for one side to just uh, give way to the other. Um, because what I'm concerned about in all of this is about finding something that works for everybody, that is a mutually acceptable deal that works sustainably, durably uh, and equitably. And at the moment, we haven't done that. And partly that's because poor choices have been made. 
I think we do have to raise a question about the EU's decision to segment the withdrawal issues and the future relationship issues into two separate processes. I understand why they did it. Uh, but uh, as much as the EU has tried not to uh, trample over the UK and its uh, indecisiveness and its political uh, clashes, um, the danger comes of uh, fulfilling the uh, negative image that uh, I mentioned earlier in the episode. And for the UK, well, the problem that I really have with the UK is the one that I've mentioned already, which is still not knowing what the point of the exercise is. If you don't have that, then you will keep on encountering situations like this. Yes, you can avoid the costs of a no deal, the political costs of a no deal, because you might be able to blame it on the other side. But once that moment passes, you still have the other side there. And if you want to improve relationships or get them functioning, you're going to have to engage with them at some point. And if you've done that after you've squarely dropped the minute by saying they were the ones who uh, screwed us over, then you can imagine it's not going to be any easier to do. And this, I think, is uh, one of the real features of the British approach, which has been very short-termist, very much about crisis management, moving from one problem to the next without really thinking about how the current problem and its solution might possibly uh, impact on the next issue and problem, and indeed create the next issue and problem. If you want to take uh, the most recent example, think about the non-extension of the transition period perfectly sensible for the UK government that wants to send a signal to its supporters that it is not going to do what its predecessor did and drag this process out any longer than it needs to be. Likewise, uh, you know, uh, introducing the Internal Market Bill made uh, a degree of sense in terms of signalling its resoluteness uh, to its supporters. But both of those moves come with costs. Uh, we see the cost on time with a non-extension now. We see the cost on your international reputation uh, with the Internal Market Bill now. And all of these things simply make life much, much harder than it needs to be. Ultimately, I think there is a space for a new equilibrium relationship that is constructive, that is mutually beneficial. But this is not going to be the way that we go about achieving it. I think uh, until we have some kind of reset of this process, uh, as much as I'm told off by my IR colleagues for using the word reset, uh, I think we are going to find that we're going to have more of this kind of issue, whether or not we have a deal. So, a little bit downbeat, but well, what can you do? Uh, it's the autumn, uh, we've got less than three months, uh, it's raining, and all of these things, I think, make me rather pessimistic. However, doubtless I'll be back in a week with some amazing breakthrough news or some interesting development. But perhaps, and the final point again is the one that I started off with, is that where we are now is where we might have expected to have been back at the beginning of the process. And with that, I will leave you with uh, the choice words of uh, Boris Johnson's predecessor, which is that nothing has changed. Make of that what you will.